Good evening. Well, on our way into church, Kathy and I did as we often do, and we talked about songs that were pertinent to the lesson that was upcoming. We had a hard time with David and Goliath songs this morning, and we had a little bit of trouble even with the lesson tonight. I want to commend Dennis for the great job he did in preparing for these songs. One of the songs that we thought of on the way in was the first song that we sang tonight. But I want you to think about how many songs that we sing to the Father or about the Father. Or how many even more perhaps that we sing about or to Jesus. And by contrast of that, I want you to think how few we sing about or to the Spirit of God. I can only think of one off the top of my head in which we address the Spirit of God in our songs of worship. But it, it kind of fits with, doesn't it, what we think about and what we know when it comes to the Godhead. When we come to study the Godhead, we see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in so many of the important moments in history. Beginning with the creation in Genesis chapter 1, we see the Spirit of God, we see the Father God, and we see the Son of God in the act of creation. We also see the, the three personalities of the Godhead in the giving of the law. We see these personalities of the Godhead through Jesus in his ministry. If we're talking about the baptism of Jesus or the temptation of Jesus at the cross of Calvary in the revelation of God's word and in the heavenly scene in eternity. And yet, when we think about what we know in relative sense with regard to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to some extent, our knowledge of and understanding of the Spirit seems to be somewhat of a hole in our study. Now, I don't know if you have any books in your library that are devoted to talking about the work or the person of the Holy Spirit. As a preacher, I guess that's why I've got several of those in my library. And they range in their titles for things like the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit makes no earthly sense to a lot of studies on how he uh, indwells and who he is. And because I think there has been somewhat of a controversy or a misunderstanding, there have been conflicts and strange teachings about the Spirit for almost as long as the church has existed. We think about our study and we think about some of what has been said throughout time. In 156 AD, there was a man by the name of Montanus and he was going around and teaching there in the second century that there was going to be a new age of the Holy Spirit complete with prophecy and spiritual gifts. This tells us that the spiritual gifts of the apostles and the Christians of the first century had already ceased as he was signaling that it was going to start again. In 215 A.D., there was a man by the name of Sibelius. And Sibelius taught that there was only one personality in the Godhead and that he revealed himself in three different ways depending on the circumstances as either Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. We get on a little bit further down in church history to the 4th century and there was a man by the name of Arius. And Arius taught that God, as we would recognize, the Father is eternal but that he created Jesus and later he created the Holy Spirit. Augustine, a name that we often associate with vital changes in the church, he was responsible for the church in the Roman Empire, now not the New Testament church, being recognized as the state religion, but he taught that faith was impossible 
without an overpowering work of the Holy Spirit. If it were our purpose, we could walk down a timeline and we could see various teachings and controversies regarding the Holy Spirit all the way up till today. In fact, if we want to think in certain terms of religion, there has been in the last 100 plus years so-called three waves of Pentecostalism, a charismatic view of the Holy Spirit that teaches a wide spectrum of things that frankly we can't find in the Scripture. And not a few are the people who come along and say that the Holy Spirit is speaking in my heart or the Holy Spirit has revealed some new truth to me. I thought it was very interesting, something that the late James Bells had to say in a book that he wrote on the subject of the Holy Spirit. He said they ask the Lord to guide them and then they wait for an inward impulse and impression. And when they get some feeling in their heart, in their heart they believe that God has given them that impression, but in fact they are trusting in their feelings instead of on God and His Word. We should not be looking for God to lead us and to guide us and instruct us in ways that he has never promised that he would. That being the case, tonight's lesson is not about what the Holy Spirit does not do and what the Holy Spirit should not be expected to be doing in our lives. Instead, I want us to look from the positive point of view. I want us, if you'll notice in the title of the lesson, it is what the Holy Spirit does for us today, and we're going to look at that through the lens of one of the 66 books of the Bible. But before we get there, we remind ourselves of how the Holy Spirit does His work of revealing to us what He wants us to know. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, we realize that no prophecy of the Scripture is of private interpretation. For no prophecy was done by an act or the, or the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. If we want to know what the Holy Spirit has promised that He is going to do, we've got to go to the Word that He has inspired people to write. Now, there are a lot of ways, I suppose, that we could go about our study tonight. One of the ways that we might go about that is in more of a topical uh, approach to this, and I think that's a good way to do it. But it's not what we're going to do tonight. We're not going to look at every passage. We're going to look at some outside of the book of Ephesians, but it's not our task or our approach to do it that way. What I would like for us to do is to look at the instruction, the letter that Paul gave to one church in which he spends a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit of God. And in doing that, I think that what we're going to find is some encouragement and some help in knowing what the Spirit of God is doing in our lives today. So with that, I'd like for us just to kind of walk for a few moments through the book of Ephesians and see what it has to say on this subject. What is the Holy Spirit of God doing for us today? The place to begin is the place where we just were. As Tom read to us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, we're going to see this idea again in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. One thing that the Holy Spirit of God does for us today is that He seals us. And really, as we look at these passages, there are three parts to this. The first part of this is that the Holy Spirit indwells us. And in this act of indwelling in us we are said to be sealed by Him. 
But this is also said to be a pledge or a down payment on our inheritance. So how does the Holy Spirit of God seal us? When we go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, you saw this a moment ago, that you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, and you believed, and when you believed, you were sealed in Him by the Spirit of God who was given to us as a pledge of our inheritance under the day of redemption of His own possession to the praise of His glory. A seal is that which authenticates. How many times have you heard it said or taught about in New Testament times that a sealed document was that which would have been given by someone with authority or position? And whatever that document had inside, a wax, uh, wax was put on the outside of that and there was an impression made by perhaps a ruler's ring, a signet ring. And that signification indicated that what was said was either from the one who sealed it or it was of the one who, who sealed it. But it also guaranteed that what was promised was going to take place. So what the Apostle Paul is telling these Ephesians as he starts this letter is that God has made a promise based on his power and who he is that what he has promised is going to come to pass in the end. And if you read the book of Ephesians, it's all about from the very beginning all the spiritual blessings and heavenly places that we have in Christ, at the top of which is the redemption that we have, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. So here are these Christians who are trying to live in the first century world and the Apostle Paul is telling them that you are God's special possession. He has sealed you and just so you know that you're valuable and important to Him, He has given you His Spirit. Now how did that happen? You had to receive, you had to hear the Word of God and in hearing that you had to believe. Now all we need to do is go to the first time that Jesus was ever preached on the day of Pentecost. Remember in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, you have Peter and the rest of the apostles who have said to those who were present on Pentecost, men and brethren, what shall we do? There's first a command. You recall, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. If you want to be a child of God, that's what you've got to do. You've got to respond to that message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, by being obedient, by repenting and being baptized. But then there's a promise on the other side of that. And, that is, thereafter, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not here to suggest to you that I understand all that's involved in that. But what happens is that when we are baptized into Christ, starting with Peter and throughout the New Testament, in 16 different passages, you have New Testament writers telling us that at that point, the Holy Spirit indwells us. It is a seal. It is God who is saying that this one belongs to me, is marked out, is authenticated as a child of God, but it's also a pledge of the inheritance of God's own possession. Sometimes this has been likened to a down payment or as an engagement ring. In the view of the consummation of our marriage to the bridegroom, that what we have between now and then, when God realizes His promise of eternal life, that He's promised us that He has allowed His Spirit to live within us, Romans 8 and verse 9. If anyone has not the Spirit of God, he does not belong to Him. 
You have writers like Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 in verse 22 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in verse 5 telling us that, that the Spirit within us is a down payment or a guarantee on the day of redemption. Now, as we talk about what He does for us, He gives us comfort, confidence, and assurance in our knowing that at the moment that we become a child of God, that the Spirit of God is in us. Now, back in the days of Guy and Woods and Gus Nichols, when they argued on how this was done, I believe that the argument, if you want to call it that, I hate to use that word, but the disagreement did not center on whether or not the Spirit of God dwells within us, but how. That to deny that the Spirit is within us is to deny a truth that is repeated throughout the New Testament. Now, I'm going to suggest to you tonight, spoiler alert if you want to call it that, I believe that he actually, literally indwells us. But he either does so actually or he does so representatively. But what Paul is doing here is he is indicating that when you become a child of God, the Spirit of God is within you as a seal and as a down payment, as a guarantee that's going to be fully realized one day. He does that for us. But second, I'd like you to notice with me in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 18, that the Spirit gives us access to the Father. This is a blessing and a promise that the Apostle Paul states in just about those words in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 18. Now, leading up to that, we see the means of access to the Father. How do we get access to the Father? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 14, we read about what Jesus does. He is our peace, who has made both, that's Jew and Gentile, one. Having de uh, destroyed that dividing wall, that barrier between us that separated us, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity that is contained in ordinances, so to make it himself of two, one new man, thus establishing peace, and that he might make both one, to, through God, in the church, through the cross of Jesus Christ, thereby establishing peace. And he came to preach peace unto you who are afar off and to them who are near. I'm not telling you something you don't already know. And that is that we have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. John 14 and verse 6. And then John chapter 14 itself. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the who. That's the why. But the how, the manner of that, is seen in verse 18. We are granted that access to the Father through Jesus Christ. You know, when we begin to study some of what is said here, we realize that there is a special relationship that we have with God the Father through Christ that the Spirit has a part in. Again, you see it put together in Galatians chapter 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might have the adoption of sons. And for those who are sons, He has spent, sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And so we're no longer slaves, but sons. And if sons, then heirs through Christ. And in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, the Bible says again that through this uh, testifying of God's Spirit, we realize that we are the children of God. He bears witness with our spirit. Now, I want you to notice that this does not say that the Spirit of God 
testifies or bears witness to our spirit, as if the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to our spirit. He is saying the same thing that we are saying. He is saying we are the children of God. We have access to the Father. And that's what we are saying if we understand and we follow and we believe the truth. And that the, the power of that witness within us is that we have confidence before him. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 10. And the way he witnesses is through the scripture. Hebrews 10 and verse 16. The Holy Spirit testifies to us. And you know what the next verse does? Quote scripture goes back to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And so we have the Spirit of God testifying alongside of our spirit that we belong to the children of God. We have access to the Father. And that helps me. That helps me to know that I have the right to everything that God has designated for His children. But I'm not less than. And that's a point that Paul is going to be making, especially in the first part of this letter and the application in the second part of this letter, that he's speaking to Gentiles, especially in chapter 2. He's saying, you're not missing out. But then we think about a third thing that the Spirit does for us today. Remember what we've seen is he seals us. He comes to live within us as a down payment on the inheritance, the consummation of the marriage to the, the bridegroom. He gives us access to the Father, but He also helps us to be united. We are built together as a habitation or a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Ephesians 1 and verse 22. And then when He transitions in the letter in Ephesians chapter 4, He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, in all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What the Spirit does for us is He helps us to be united. If you'll notice in that second passage, He does so by showing us the right attitude. We've got to have the right attitude to be united. And that involves the things like lowliness and meekness and patience and putting up with each other in love. We also have got to have the right structure. He, then he deals with the seven ones in verses 4 through 6. We've got to grow up to be like Jesus. You see, the Spirit's role among us today is to keep us united. He wants us to, to speak the same thing, to be of the same mind and of the same judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. And so when we do not allow the Spirit to unite us, we're going to fall prey to the religious division that is rampant in the confusion and the disunity and the disharmony that exists. But how does He do this? How does He guide us to have the right attitude? How does He show us how to function within those seven ones? How do we know how to be like Jesus? Jesus prepares His apostles and for all subsequent disciples for how this would happen with what he says in John 16 and verse 13. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own initiative, but what he hears, that he will speak, and he will show you things to come. How do I know how to be united? How do I know how to walk in agreement with you and you with me? It's through the revelation of God's Word. The means whereby He keeps us united is by the revelation that He's given to us. 
That's comforting to me because that means that somebody's not going to come along in five or ten years and say, you know, the Spirit's been moving among me or inside of me, and He has led me to tell you that we need to rethink what, the, what the, we've been teaching about the role of women or about how we worship God in song because He's going to unite us based on the Word that He's revealed to us. Likewise, we see that the Holy Spirit not only helps to unite us, but He reveals the mystery of of the gospel to us. It's beautiful what Paul says there in Ephesians chapter 3. He calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. He says, If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me toward you, he says, I wrote to you before in short about this mystery. And by referring to this, you may gain insight into my knowledge of the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not revealed to the sons of men, is it now is revealed through his apostles and prophets in the Spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right there, the Apostle Paul is indicating that the Spirit serves an important role, and, and it is something for everybody. But if you imagine that the Jews have been God's special people for so long and they have had this special regard in the eyes of God and men as the descendants of Abraham, the Apostle Paul comes along and says, look, it's, it's something that's for you. That if you are a child of God, the mystery of the gospel is that you have the right to the inheritance the same as everybody else. But not only that, you are as legitimate and full a member of the body of Christ as anybody else, and that you have the promises that are given to you the same as anyone else of all that God promises in Christ. But what's the medium whereby he reveals the mystery? The Spirit works through the Word in order to show us this truth in the revelation of the gospel. How does that happen? Look at verse 3, by revelation. Verse 5, through the apostles and the prophets. Verse 6, through the gospel. But here's a question to ask. Does the Holy Spirit only work in our lives today through the Word? Well, for the answer to that, let's look at the next thing that Paul says in the book of Ephesians. He tells us that the Holy Spirit of God strengthens the inner man. Paul prays two prayers in the first part of his letter, and the second prayer begins, I bow my knee to the Father in heaven, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth derives its name, that you would be strengthened... By, uh, according to his might, by the Spirit within you. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now when we get right here, we come to see that God strengthens us in our hearts of the Holy Spirit. I don't know all that's involved in that promise, all the mechanics of that. Here's what I know. I know that God is not going to violate my free will. And God is not going to operate on my heart apart from the message of Scripture. I need to be clear about that. I think someone said it very well when they said that if God caused a pagan to have faith, that would violate free will. Or if God caused a Christian to be pagan, that would violate free will. But if God assists someone who has already determined in their mind that they're going to follow him, that does not violate free will. But maybe we are, are scratching our heads about that and we ask, well, then how does God, apart from the word, strengthen our inner man through his spirit? Now, first of all, notice that he says 
that he does. It's not miraculous. It doesn't violate our free will. But it also seems to be something besides just what we read in the Word. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13 says that God is at work in us both the work and the will of his good pleasure. Later on, Paul's going to say in Philippians 4 verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4 19, my God will supply all your needs. Now, how does he do that? I know that he strengthens me through Scripture. But, you know, you think about how often it has been in your life that you have gone to God and you said, God, I need your strength. Strengthen me. How does he do that? Is, he, is the only answer to that go and read your Bible some more and read it harder? That's not what's being said here. He strengthens you by his spirit in the inner man. As I am striving to do what God wants me to do, and I'm walking in the direction of God, and I'm trying my hardest to live the way He wants me to live, I'm still going to be weak. I'm going to be prone to struggles in my life. And the Spirit helps me. He strengthens me in that. He also, God gives me wisdom. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. How do I get wisdom? I get knowledge by reading God's Word, but I also, what does the Bible say? If I lack wisdom, what do I do? Read the Bible? Yes, that's part of it. Listen, I'm not disparaging that at all. It's an important part of this, and we'll see it again. But he says in James 1 and verse 5, Let him ask of God. God strengthens us. God gives us wisdom, and he does so in part through the Spirit of God who is in our inner man. I don't know how that hits you. But isn't it thrilling to know that when I reach my limit and when I'm struggling and I'm stumbling and I'm falling, that God has given me this blessing in my life today to help me to cross the finish line and to overcome. It's one, one of the things that he promises that he will do for us. But he also fills us. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, and you'll notice that that comes in a contrast statement, we're going to be filled with something. God wants us to be filled with what's right. And what he says there is, do not be drunk with wine wherein is dissipation or excess, but be filled with the Spirit. To be strengthened, to be guided, to be girded. That's the idea there. Now how does that happen? Well, I've got to go back to the text to find out. Because I might say to be filled with the Spirit is any number of subjective things that I might come up with, but thankfully I don't have to fill in the blanks on my own. God does that for me with those statements that follow. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God and the Father through Him, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. God has given us the medium of song. It's a powerful force, both for good and for evil. And when we think about what God is doing in filling us with His Spirit, He does so through the wisdom of how He wants us to open up our heart to the spiritual strength that we have. And when we do so, think about the power that it will touch your heart in worship. I don't think it's just sentiment or somebody sounds beautiful sitting around you. But as we're striving to live the, the Christian life, the Spirit of God works through the command for us to speak and to sing and to make melody. It causes us then to give thanks to Him, and it causes us to improve our relationships with one another. It's what the Spirit of God is doing for us today. But the Spirit of God is also protecting us. 
In that whole armor of God, what is said is that we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. A sword protects. And I want you to see the imagery here is that the, 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 a sword is used by a warrior. And the Holy Spirit is the warrior. And it's, the fight is against sin and against Satan. And what we have is that the Word of God is a sword. Now listen, it did not say that the Holy Spirit is the Word. The Holy Spirit works through the Word. And He works through the Word to protect us, to help us as we strive to live the Christian life. But then I think there's another beautiful truth that can be seen in how the Spirit works for us today, and that is that the Holy Spirit helps us to communicate in prayer. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, it says, Praying at all times in the Spirit. Jude says something similar in verse 20. Praying in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has a part in our prayer life. And maybe the passage that you most often think about is in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. Likewise also the Spirit helps our infirmities. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit of God helps us in our weaknesses with groanings too, weak, uh, too uh, deep for words. And he who knows the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. It does not say that the Spirit makes us groan in our words. Romans 8 verse 22 and 23 says that we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. God knows the struggle that we have, the misery, the trials, the hurts that are a part of this life. And God empathizes with us through the work of the Spirit, the agency in prayer in which God helps us is that the Spirit is ministering. Having this fellowship with God, He knows the thoughts of mine. He reveals the uh, words of God. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 10, God is in uh, such close communion as the Godhead. The Spirit communicates to the Father those things that we're going through, deals empathetically with the struggles that we're communicating in our prayer life. We may not be able to put it into words. We may not know exactly how to formulate, even to form the ideas in our mind that articulates the struggles and the hurts. But the Spirit of God ministers through our prayer life in order to help and to strengthen us according to the will of God. And so I believe Romans 8 and verse 28 is talking about the Spirit, that He causes all things to work together for good in the agency of working with us through our prayer life. He takes the good and the bad in our lives and he works it out according to the will of God and the purpose of God for us. That means that no matter what I'm going through, whatever valley I'm in, if I can't even express it, the Spirit of God actively works in my prayer life. Now what I want you to notice is that some of what is said in the book of Ephesians deals with the Spirit working through the Word. The Spirit is going to communicate to us through the Word and not in some other way. The Spirit of God is not going to work in some miraculous way. If you look through a Scripture, you don't see any promise beyond that first century world of God's Spirit working through miraculous spiritual gifts. But there is room in between the Word alone and the miraculous, and there are blessings there. And it helps me to know that God is alive and He's active today. 
He's involved in my life and he cares. Because when I look at some of what Paul says in the letter to the Ephesians, he seals me with his spirit. That's done apart from the word. That's a, a blessing and a promise that he gives me when I become a child of God. He strengthens my inner man in ways in addition to the word, through the strength that God provides, whether in providence or in the answer of prayers or in the outworking of my life and giving me strength. But he also is involved in my life apart from the word in those moments in which he is giving me access to the Father. I learned about that through the word. He fills my heart, not just through the word, but also through song. And he assists me in my prayer life in a way that is not just through the word. It's beautiful. It helps me to know that as I walk out of these assemblies and I go out into my week, that I don't necessarily have you by my side, but I have the Spirit of God within to help me to be successful in living the Christian life. I don't know that we commonly argue that the reason to become a Christian is to have God's Spirit dwell within. What a powerful blessing that we're missing if we're not a child of God or not living faithfully as a child of God. We need all the help we can get. God has promised us great help in making it through this life. Doesn't this show us that God wants us to overcome and to be with Him forever? He has pulled out every stop does not violate our own free will in order to help us to have just that. If you're not a child of God or if you need to be restored to Him, why not do so in light of all the help that God wants to give you from your church family and from all that the Godhead has promised? If you need to respond to the invitation, won't you come right now as we stand and sing?